You found it, the Japan Web Podcast, blowing hot air out of the back end of Tokyo. I'm your co-host, Matt Bigelow. Yeah, I'm your co-host, Mike Rogers. I'm the host. You're you're the host. You're the host. What's yeah, up? so nice yeah. to see you. Yeah, nice good. to see you. Matt. Nice to see, see you too, Mike. How's it going? Um, really good, actually. Can I brag? Yes. So my my radio show this morning, I hit number one on Twitter. Japan, that's two weeks in a row, but maybe 136 weeks in a row in the top five. Congratulations. Now, I've seen you post these things, and I'm very curious about them. I'm not too familiar with but, Japanese Twitter. What does it mean to become uh-huh. number one on Twitter? What does that mean? Well, of course, they don't give out information about how their algorithms and things work. But um, according to the president of Twitter, and we should have him on the show one of these days soon, um, there's 45 million monthly users on Twitter in Japan and Twitter in Japan and Twitter in the States is diff- basically a different company because Twitter in the States really does a lot of political stuff. Yeah. But in, in Japan, they kind of don't, they don't do, they just don't do that. But also Japanese society, people aren't so, um, what do you say? Aggressive or abusive to other people about politics here. And that's a, that, why that is, is another story for another time. I can say but, that it's um, really nice. It's yeah. a nice aspect of living here. And I'm, I'm tired so, of people coming here and trying to shove their politics into everything. Anyways. Yeah. So, so Twitter Japan runs every five minutes. So every five minutes, like a seven o'clock to seven oh four fifty nine, it will count how many tweets were made by listeners to what, or uh, tweeters, I guess, to whatever TV show they're watching, um, sports game they're watching, whatever they're watching. And so um, in in this five-minute span of time, I can hit number number one if I'm lucky and plan it out towards my listeners. Just say, like, I make contests. There's no prize, no nothing. There's nothing. But... Um, Tell people, you know, this is the contest. How many M&Ms are produced every year? Is it 350 billion? Is it 350 million? You know, just stuff like that. And then people guess. And then... Oh, and they put like can, at MRS show hashtag right. or they hashtag that's it. Right. Oh, okay. And, and so that's how... And t- actually today's show had a lot of new listeners, but it, I'm building a community. It's the, you know, it's the 20s and... um Building a community with your listeners is very important, critical yeah, yeah. towards radio. So Media tribe, I, I, it's called. Yeah, so I'm always chatting with the listeners and, hi, good morning to you. I say good morning to everybody. And they chat with each other. And it, it builds up a certain core of a group of people. And I guess they kind of feel like they're in a club. And they're proud to be in the club. And... They they make friends and some some of my listeners they even have parties. Oh, cool! That's awesome. Yeah, they have they have they have the Mike Rogers show party and they invite me. I I rarely go, but if I can, I'll I'll go. But usually, you know, they they don't do stuff till like seven o'clock at night, and I'm sleeping then. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so it it's just kind of something to brag. And in Japan, there are no ratings for radio. There's no Arbitron, none none of that. So there's no way to rate um, a, a radio show. So 
basically Twitter has opened up a gold mine for radio stations if somebody would figure out how to do it. But I've talked to so many radio people and they they think Twitter is the is the competition or something. No, Twitter so, is a is a is a reflection of reality in real time. Yeah. It's a it's so, it's an interface and it depends on the society you're living in, but it, it you are interfacing it with society in real time. Yeah. So so okay, well, anyway, so speaking about about that, I've got a story here about ad revenue for traditional media. Great. Let's uh, let's hear it. Yeah. During this COVID time, it it ad revenue they're predicting ad revenue is going to fall 12% in 2020 due the due to the coronavirus pandemic pandemic. But digital media is going to go up 4%. And this is according to Interpublic Group's Media Research Mag Magna. And uh, in here, there's a lot of um, um, different details, but um, radio, FM radio, AM radio is expected to fall 16% this year. And it was already bad last year. So 16 falling 16% year on year, that's really bad. And podcasts, they figure podcasts and this internet radio and everything is going to go up by about 3.9%. That makes so it, come on, let's get some money here. I know. Well, that's Man. the thing. Um, uh, I, I I've put up on um the Japan what Facebook page a uh, a little advertisement promo thing that shows our accomplishments in the past six months. And if people could go in, screenshot it, or download it, and and share it, or like it, or whatever, it really helps the podcast. Now, what's interesting is that. We get probably 80% plus of the internet traffic to my website comes from Facebook. Really? Yeah, for the show. Mm. Um, mm. But uh, the show itself doesn't get a lot of engagement on Facebook. Uh, people click like and that's it. Yeah, or they don't even do that. They see that there's something up and they go to the website itself. So oh. there's like two different types of metrics you can use for Facebook. One is the amount of engagement you get on Facebook itself, or the other one is the mm -hmm. amount of engagement you get from Facebook. Mm -hmm. And that's two very different numbers. And one, the first one where you engage, engage a lot on Facebook kind of means people are just clicking like and moving on and maybe not engaging with the content. Yeah. The other mm -hmm. one means they go, oh, that's interesting, but it's maybe a bit funky. I'm just going to go to the website itself and download it from there, or I'm going to go to the podcast player or the podcatcher I'm using and use it from there as well. It, it was explained to me by the the folks at Twitter, and I'm talking about the president and marketing manager, explained to me that Facebook is look at me. Yeah. Look at me, look at what I'm doing. Twitter is look at this. And that might be hard to get your head around. It's a little bit difficult for me too, but um, Twitter has very little, very few uh, photos of people's ramen and stuff like that. Yeah, it's it's um, it's more like what you're saying. I'm supporting this. Yeah, there's a lot of support because Japanese people like to support. The manager of Big Data from SoftBank uh, also told me that Facebook is looking inside your group and Twitter is looking mm -hmm. outside your group. Ah, uh, as well, which is another okay. interesting aspect to it. Mm. So, so 
We need money. Anyway, so we need. <laughs> <laughs> so go to go to the Facebook. Yeah, page. How much you got in your wallet? There, give it to me. <laughs> yeah. And, well, there's a donation. You can go to. Um, we have a PayPal donation as well. It's like PayPal dot me slash Japan W U T, and you can donate to the show oh. from there. So, uh, trying well, to get more into the promo side of things for the show as well. Yeah. Um, before we, we're going to kind of cheat a little bit and go to a guest in a second here, but, um, there's the Tokyo gubernational races on and oh yeah, when this comes up, uh, I, I like to listen to the news in Japan, which I don't normally do just because all of the, all of the kind of wacky party names have to be mentioned in the news. And this one is no exception. So here's the clip. Cool. Official campaigning has kicked off in the race to decide who will govern the Japanese capital for the next four years. The election is being held as Tokyo works to limit the spread of the coronavirus while resuming economic and social activities. 22 candidates are running. Yamamoto Taro is a former actor turned politician and leader of the Reiwa Shinsengumi party. Incumbent Koike Yuriko, an independent, is seeking her second term. A senior Liberal Democratic Party official is backing her campaign, but the party itself is not supporting any specific candidate. Koike also has the tacit backing of the LDP's coalition partner, Komeito. Utsunomiya Kenji is a former head of the Japan Federation of Bar Associations. He has the backing of three opposition parties, the Constitutional Democratic Party, the Japanese Communist Party, and the Social Democratic Party. Ono Taisuke is a former deputy governor of Kumamoto Prefecture in southwestern Japan. He is supported by Nippon Ishin Japan Innovation Party. Tachibana Takashi is the leader of the party of protecting people from NHK. Seventeen other candidates have registered. One focus of the campaign is how to fight the coronavirus. Anyways, you get it. But the last guy there, he's protect the the party to protect people from the NHK, which is of course the the national broadcaster. I'm into that. Yeah, but <laughs> it's it's insane how many parties there are, and and oh, yeah. and how how much they get support from each other. The the social liberal Democrats and the communists support one guy, and then the the religious Komeito, <laughs> the Sokogakai people support another one. At, at an election, and it wasn't that long ago, maybe five or six years ago, there was this really, you know, beautiful woman. And I walked down to the station and she was having her speech out on the van there or whatever. And she was a member of the Communist Party. And I just stood there for a minute and kind of watched her because this girl was, this girl was a 9.5. And she was talking about she's against the um, uh, sales tax against these all these other taxes and i kind of thought what this is a communist things are just totally messed up in this country like yeah. you know i used to teach I, the communists from the the communist newspaper the akahata shimbum they were my students for a while we'd go drinking and stuff the japanese communists are are fun yeah i i've never had problem with them and i would have voted for this woman because you know why She's hot. You know why? I want to because she's hot. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I want to see her on TV. <laughs> yeah. More hotties on TV. Screw taxes, whatever. <laughs> you just got to be hot. 
<laughs> but yeah, so there's there's this this whole guy and his 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 campaign also went viral on Twitter. I think the guy who's protecting people from NHK because there's such a stranglehold of mass media in Japan yeah, that the only way right. to um, get past it is through platforms like Twitter. Even Facebook won't even help you that much in Japan. Oh, wow! Well, best way for everyone to not pay. Uh, Taxes or whatever it's called, uh, the money to NHK is just get rid of your TV. Yep, I've never paid them a dime, and uh, no, and actually, there's no. I, we're not supposed to say this, but um, there are, is no in the law. It says there's a penalty if you don't pay the NHK a monthly fee or whatever it is, but it doesn't specify what the penalty is. Mm. So when I first threw my TV away, like 20 some years ago, they came to my house, they wanted to collect the money. And I was told them like, no, I don't have a TV. I don't ha have it here anyway. And they said, you still have to pay. And this went on for months and them coming and telling you got to pay, you got to pay. Finally, I told them like, no, I work. I, I work in TV and radio. I, I don't want to pay the money. And the, the, the final time the guy's boss came and he said, okay, well, you don't have to pay, but don't tell anyone. <laughs> <laughs> That's what he said. Weirdos, man. They're all weirdos. They're all freaks. <laughs> what a strange system. But um, even, even the uh, now that you think about it, you've stopped watching TV 20 some odd years ago and we're kind of in yeah. the interview coming up and talking about some of the, the ways that uh, technology lags in Japan. Even for a party to come up that's anti-NHK is like the first time ever or whatever. Even that's a bit of a lag. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, like look in um, England, the BBC, there's a whole big a movement of people don't pay BBC and everything. And But here, a lot of people think, a lot of regular people think, uh, very kind of socialist that the government has a responsibility to run these stations. That they think they think that Canadians do too. It's it's really strange. Yeah, I, you know I don't care. You know here I'll sign a paper. You tell you you guys can run TV commercials all you want. Here you've got my permission. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, we're gonna go to an interview here with um, okay. Uto Batiar, and we'll come out on the mm -hmm. other end and uh, cover some more news. Here we go. Uh, so, uh, Hugo Bataer has been leading digital innovation projects for 10 years, managing teams locally and overseas to deliver products with clear value propositions and create strategic partnerships. He experienced both big corporations, such as uh, En Japon, <laughs> recruiting in Japan, uh, Orange Numero 4, a telecommunication company in Europe, and promising startups like Shipio, the first digital foreign forwarder in Japan, um, graduated from Telecom uh, Paris Tech, a French uh, top-tier engineering school with a master's degree in computer science and certified in agile team management, both Scrum Master, CSM, and PQ. Welcome to the podcast, Monsieur Hugo Bataillard. Thank you for inviting me. And good morning. Good morning. Yes. Um, I'm going to the ceremonial sip as Scott Adams likes to oh, say. Oh, yeah. I got to have the food. All right. So um, I'm interested in um, 
foreigners uh, being entrepreneurs uh, in Japan, um, and you're both kind of this uh, individual who's involved in something else I'm interested in, which is supply chain management. Um, so can you um, please, why did you decide to come to Japan to do entrepreneurship with uh, the digital supply chain management aspect to it? All right, so I've been here for 11 years, so I didn't come for that purpose in particular. Uh, but I, I came more as a, I had an internship at Orange Labs, you know, like a, as a researcher for a software and telecommunication. And it was, it was really great six months of, uh, like I really discovered a new culture, a new kind of life, uh, Tokyo especially. Lots of girlfriends um, too, right? Yeah. Uh, okay, that's right. <laughs> all right. <laughs> no, 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 actually, no, no. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not that good at that. Uh, but I really enjoyed the nightlife, though. So it was, I was uh, like staying in a Shibuya, in, like next to the womb. Computer uh, crazy science small. pussy. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, that was the point. You know, I came from this, you know, engineering school with only engineers. And, you know, you have this crowd of only like-minded people. And I ended up in this like share house in the middle of Shibuya, Maruya, uh, Maruya Macho, you know, like, all the level yeah. that are. Mm. And with a bunch of architects, DJs, designers, you know, a really different crowd, like photographers. And for me, it was like a really awakening of like, you know, what other life can be. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so that's why I really loved it. And uh, then I... I I finished my studies and I asked for a real job at Orange Labs and that's how I ended here. Um, so, but the, the entrepreneurship, like I've always been interested in entrepreneurship. I uh, really wanted to do that from the start. And actually during my first job at Orange Japan, I already started another company at the time. Uh, it was called uh, Smint, uh, Smart Internet. Uh, <laughs> but the name, the name of the company was not relevant, but the name of the, we, we made a, a mobile app called Fukupix, which was uh, uh, Fuku, uh, clothes, and Pix picture. And at the time we were trying to make like a kind of Instagram where you could tag uh, people's clothing, uh, where they bought them. Kind of like the influencer model before the influencer was there, but we didn't know how to monetize it and what, what could be an influencer at the time. Um, so yeah, that, that was a total failure, but that was great. Uh, we were three, uh, we, we did that for a, a year and a half. And, uh, th- that was my first experience with entrepreneurship. Um, then like I did a bunch of jobs, like you said, in my bio, uh, I ended up, um, in uh, logistics with my latest job, you know, CPO. Um, and for me, logistics was, you know, one of those, not sexy industries, uh, but I'm really always pulled towards those because like everybody is doing like fintech and health tech or whatever. Um, and I'm more like, I'm more interested in like going to industries where the technology is not there yet um, and try to, to think about it because my, my really interest is, you know, solving problems uh, and, and trying to find ways for technologies to, to do that. So that's why, like, supplies, when they, they asked me, like, oh, you want to be CTO of freight uh, for water? And I was like, whoa, what's a freight for water? Uh, hopefully, my father in law was uh, working at KWE, Kintetsu World Express. So I had a big talk with him, you know, explain me a bit, like, you know, how, 
how stupid idea it was to, to start a freight forwarding company because it's uh, it's so hard the margins are so low and everything uh and i was like that's great what, what is <laughs> i want to go there what, what is a freight forwarding company um okay so like um you know like uh, when you want to travel before you were like a lot you were going to a travel agency right so a travel agency doesn't own any planes or any trucks or any but they just organize the whole trip. They will plan for your bus, your rental car, your plane, and your hotel. So freight forwarding is really similar concept in the, the freight um, world, right? So when you want to ship a container, for example, from uh, Japan to Europe, um, first you need to book the, the book the ship, right? To get the, mm-hmm. the container on there, the space. But then you also need to get that container to your factory. You need the truck there, and then you need the truck to go back to the thing. You also need to organize the customs uh, brokering uh, brokerage, um, like do all the papers. And then on the other side, again, you need to book another truck to receive the, the thing and then bring it back to the factory. And it can be even more steps in between, because sometimes you know you just have a small vacation to go to a warehouse where it's consolidated in, into a container and everything. So. That's the job of a freight forwarding company. That they will organize this the kind of a uh, chef d'orchestre uh, <laughs> orchestra <laughs> director. Um, so that, that's that's what the that's what a freight forwarding company is. So yeah, that's why I was saying like the, the margins. You know, depending on the right now with COVID, it's it's a different uh, different question. But like uh, if, before, like everybody was competing on cost, and uh, since. Uh, Reporting like a travel agency, they, they just can reduce their margin or try to negotiate a bit better, but that's not uh, super easy. Yeah, so uh, wait a minute about so what you were mentioning about COVID compared to like maybe one year ago. How long have you been doing this job? Uh, I'm not doing it anymore. Uh, oh. I was doing it for two years um, oh, okay. until, until June last year. Oh, okay. So, oh, so you don't have a comparison between let's say June, 2019 and June, 2020, like how, how much no, but, uh, down or what, or what? So I, I don't work there, but I still have uh, friends uh, and also my father-in-law there. And so right now, like what's really hard is like, especially for air freight, there's no, there's not as many planes going, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, like, and it's really harder to get some space. So the price has doubled or and even tripled. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for all people in the industry, it's kind of, it's a good and a bad thing because you can sell much higher so you can have higher margins. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, you know, the, there is less uh, volume. So mm-hmm. you, you can make more money on certain opportunities, but you need to be really good also to find uh, the space, especially as a free forwarding company, since you don't own the planes, you really, if you're in a powerful position with like uh, contracts already with the uh, air companies, then you can have big opportunities for smaller players that don't have those. I think it's going to be harder, you know, to find the space. Oh. What were some of the challenges and benefits of doing freight forwarding in Japan? And this was digitally, right? Like a digital app? Yeah, so like the um, the whole logistics industry, you know, it's really a bit behind uh, technologically. Um, in Japan, but it's catching up. Like uh, in Japan, especially, but even 
in 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 a lot of the world like it's not that it's not that great but again it's it's catching up uh, like cambodia and uh, egypt yeah uh, but even like you know uh, not even that like even in developed countries like uh, really like japan is a great example for for this like everything is facts based you know still like that's one of those industries where it's real you know like uh, you know in japan there's a lot of industry where it's not that real anymore but there it is uh and even even more so for like uh you you want to get a price you know you get it's a negotiation and uh, no nothing is transparent you don't know where people get their margin or they, you get some invoice with some items on it but eh. uh and even after that to to know where your your package is it's really hard sometimes you need to call you know the, yeah. People calling every day, the the forwarding companies like, uh, is it yet? Yet is it there yet? <laughs> There's no way uh, to track stuff. So all the experience we have in the B two C world, like with UPS or uh, FedEx, you know, where you can just click a tracking number and you see where it is. Um, in that industry, it's not it's not true. Uh, you may so, get like the yeah. Sorry. So Ugo, what's a fax machine? <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know the airlines, and I. This was maybe ten years ago, but the airlines still use telex machines. Telex machines. Yeah, telex machines to communicate flight, flights, what flights are leaving. What that was like up to ten years ago, and I was really shocked to see these big ass machines printing out this stuff. And the boss at Delta told me that that's just the way it is in the industry. So it's the industry standard. So to change the industry standard into a more exactly. modern thing, that's the problem. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I also think that's what uh, Ugo, what you're trying to do, right? Yeah. What do you mean? Like uh, Mo- trying to change that? Well, um, modernize through digitization. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that's what we were trying to do. Yes, indeed. Like, so even just, um, you know, like even if, uh, our uh, back office, you know, was manual uh, because we had to, for example, to interact with the uh, the government or this. Like we tried for our customers to abstract this uh, into our you know web platform, where everything seemed aut- automatic, automated, uh, and you could get information right away. So we had like a, a dashboard where they can see stuff. They also could uh, chat with us in real time. You know. Uh, through each uh, shipment, so like each conversation was uh, was separated, and even files like you know normally you send files by fax, and you don't know which one you sent and everything. So in that case, you know everything was uh, uh, digital, and in um, in uh, in the context of a shipment. So if you didn't know, if you didn't know, yeah, you always knew what you sent or what we received for that shipment, and so. Now, all even just that part, like, would uh, um, make the the whole process easier. Through this process, did you learn to hate paper? Oh yeah, well, I've always hated it. Uh, <laughs> I mean, so I've been in different industries, and it was always, I mean, often the same problems. And uh, but I have a whole presentation about you know how to go from paper to digital to paper uh i made that in 2017 have you is there a lot of backlash against that in in a conservative country like japan uh 
it depends. Like you know, there's a there's a wish to to go like forward. Like even uh, the the customs, uh, the, the government customs. You know, they have an electronic system called NAX, and they have a whole team who wants to go forward. But for example, their team can only make updates every eight years, and when Shipio started in 2017, uh, they just released their <laughs> their release. So we knew that every discussion we could have with them, we could only expect uh, the the result of those eight years forward, which is way too far for a startup. So you know, that, yeah, well, well Matt, Matt, the the reason being, and and uh, Ugo, the reason being is I think in this country still people who are over fifty. 50, 60, and of some companies, the presidents are like 70 years old still. And they don't care about, <laughs> they don't care about Steve Jobs or anything like that. They just want, you send it, you got to send them a document like this, that just tons of paper. They just want volume. So I, <laughs> I've given up on, on a lot of these people. <laughs> it's going to be a long time in this country. But also, you know, like it's a lot of jobs, you know, and yeah. it, it, it's it's a it's a country which is kind of averse to unemployment. So when you say you're gonna we're gonna change this whole process with you know one software, one machine, and one thing that's gonna kill I don't know 10, 15 jobs, it's a really hard decision yep. to make, and even more so in the public you know in the public field. So you know I'm not saying you know uh, that they don't have any reasons either to, to be uh afraid of this but for me like here right now that's where that's when like uh things are changing because there's no choice anymore even like because that people can't go to the office anymore this whole even just the hanko thing right now which which is getting big like uh, the traditional the stamp says, that you know, people use to sign things in japan yeah, yeah it's okay yeah i'm a stickler for these details i'll, I'll be on it don't worry about it so I, I heard that so, there's like a digital yeah. Hanko project. Yeah, no, actually the government said, you know, they, they don't re, they don't require Hanko to be printed and their their support uh, digitally uh, signed documents, even if like the, I think the constitution or the law is a bit, you know, they, they, it's not as precise anymore, but at least, you know, the government made an announcement that, they consider this okay and they want to go forward in that direction. So that means this, hopefully it's going to change. With something like digital signage, yeah. you get like the, the exact time it was signed you, and you, all of the details can just be metadata and you don't need somebody yes. to check over it. It's really an interesting concept and I, I quite like it. I've, I've worked at a paperless office for five years and it was it's surprising how quickly you can do things. Um, and I've yeah. just started at another office that uses a combination of digital and paper. And it's, it's, it's interesting how much paper slows things down um, to yeah. the point where you kind of go, is this really necessary? Uh, so what are you trying to do now? Okay. So since last year, I started the Gourmet Pro. And so I started really as a, I wanted to make um, di direct contact between food producers and people who would buy, so like restaurants or retail. And so try to make this business matching platform and hopefully 
on top of that, like give them the, some tools to help with the negotiation. For example, since I started in Japan, you know, Japan is not great at English in general. So one of the first idea was, you know, there would be a communication tool inside where uh, with automated translations. Um, another point after some interviews, you know, um, some people are afraid of international contracts or they, they don't know anything about export or import. So give them templates or, you know, help uh, even um, lawyer help uh, to, to establish those contracts. And then we, uh, after, after a few months of more research, we realized that like the business matching part is really maybe like 15% of the need, but the whole strategy, like how, which market to start, what product to, to get, like how to even modify a product. For example, a product which is made in Japan for a hundred years has been marketed in a certain way. Like uh, for example, let's take uh, matcha, right? But if you enter Europe, you would not um, market it the same way, even the design and everything. Uh, in Japan, it would be more maybe around culture, around like the, where it's been grown. Uh, but in Europe, maybe it would be more about health and like the benefits and everything. That's just one example. So in order to understand better those needs, we started more doing consulting. Uh, you started, sorry, what what consulting? What consulting? Uh, consulting for entry to market. Okay. So people who either they want to go from Japan to whatever, US, Europe, uh, they're making tea, they're making uh, rice or whatever. Uh, all the opposite, people from uh, outside to come to Japan. And uh, we also had some mission where people who wanted to produce stuff in Japan and import it. Um, like, for example, some chuhai or some, uh, uh, some matcha or something like that. Um, and so we've, did, we've done that for about uh, six months. And now we, we know a much better you know, what other people needs and uh, how, uh, how to deliver that. So now we just released the platform, but in a bit of a different way that uh, I was thinking about last year. And through that, we have like, again, the, the business matching, the networking, but also all the consulting service we, we have, uh, we will provide those as packaged, you know, transparently priced through the platform. You could just say like, I want this, 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 and we'll deliver it to you. And uh, another point we, we found out was like, there's a lot of small players. We, we, we're just a small company, we're like three people, and we cannot do the consulting for everybody or even just some services. So we want to open like a marketplace of players uh, inside with both offline services, online services, and content. Uh, for content, like we're, we've released our first report around, around the retail in Japan, like a whole snapshot of different players. You know, it's a really fragmented market. There's uh, a lot of uh, different supermarket chains compared to France, for example, which is really consolidated. Um, uh, so yeah, we have those those reports that we would produce ourselves, but we invite people who wants to produce reports to put them in our uh, marketplace and uh, so to facilitate um, uh, people who want to start in Japan, for example. Uh, I think, I think in turn, yeah. Oh, I, I think um, just from what I know, this sounds like a good project to present to recruit. Okay. You know, Why recruit especially? Well, recruit is doing a lot of, you know, you go to the station, all those free magazines. Yeah. Those are all recruit. Almost yeah, all yeah, of yeah. them. Like hot, so, hot paper and. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so they're, they're trying to branch out more into food services and doing things like that. So I know that they um, invest in a lot of startups. Okay. So I, I used to know a guy there, but he moved to another another section. But um, yeah, going to recruit would be good. But just be careful. Be very careful. <laughs> be very careful with them. I'm not okay. saying that. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that at all. All right. All right. So with the, uh, Ugo, with yeah. this project um, so far, what, what the, for just a basic question, what was something that was you thought would be popular but wasn't, and what was something that became popular that you didn't think would? Was there anything like that? Um. So. Like for at the start, like you know, I was really thinking about um, connecting directly, like a, a food producer with a retail, right? Like a, a restaurant, for example. That's a very and popular then, like, idea with Huawei, by the way. Oh yeah. Yeah, connecting um, African coffee makers with uh, Beijing uh, coffee shops through their, mm. their platform. But anyways, so. Even that idea, uh, after talking with uh, with some restaurants, um, you know, it's it, sometimes it's a bit hard because, like for example, a restaurant they they may need, I don't know, let's say a hundred kilo of cheese a month, right? So that's a huge amount. Fuck but yeah! They, <laughs> uh, but they can't have hundred kilo of cheese in their restaurants right now. They right. want it to be dispatched every day or something mm -hmm. so like during even if like the, the the it could be a better price if you directly source and you don't go through a distributor and everything but then you have this whole overhead uh of uh, the, the the logistics basically of it and so that part like you know i, I didn't really foresee it and i was like oh so that's why i kind of like okay maybe that's the thing i think would be great because the value is here is like better price and even like better sourcing because your distributors, they don't have as much choice as whatever you can find on the internet. Um, but then you realize that there are some issues. And so that's one of the reasons why I started, like we started the consulting to really understand like which part we could fix because even the logistics is not a, a super big issue if you have good logistics providers, right? You can find uh, uh, like they're called third party uh, logistics provider, 3PL that would handle that for you. But, you know, it's a big, like this image of like starting this is really hard for, for, for a restaurant to start with like this. Um, so that's one of the, the things that I thought would be popular right away, but like, yeah, no, there's a lot of things to fix. And if we can prove that we have experience in that and we can fix it really easily, I think that could still be popular, but uh, right now still still in the learning curve. There was a lot of moving um, parts. Shifting components. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm, makes sense. Yeah. But I think like for smaller stuff, like even for tea, for example, you know, you don't need that much uh, because it's not that heavy. You don't need that bigger quantity for, especially for small tea shops, they would buy like maybe one kilo of each, uh, and one kilo is already a lot uh, of tea, but they, they better like source smaller producers and a lot of them than like a big consolidated um, thing. Um, so that was what I think was popular and was not. And then the opposite, uh, would I won't think that it was popular and that was finally, um, 
I think like uh, yeah, this idea of people wanting to to find makers in Japan and make their own brand uh, somewhere else. I never thought about that. And people came to us with that request, like, oh, I need to find uh, they call that's OBM, actually right? that's actually common in broadcasting. Like some radio stations, they won't yeah. go out to the client to sell a show. They'll go out to the client and say, a show costs this much money. Do you want a show? You want you have your own show. You can play whatever you want, do whatever you want. So mm. that's, I think it's more, it's become that way um, due to bad, bad sponsorship and bad financial situation. But that's very common now. Mm. Okay. Just sell, they'll just sell you this hour and then do what you want. Kind of thing. Ah, so you just pay for it and then, but they don't own your, no, nope. it's not the opposite. It's not they don't buy your thing and and no, get what, the revenue. Like um, maybe I'm, this is a bad example because I don't think Toyota sponsors very many radio shows anymore. But Toyota would sponsor and they would do a show called Toyota World Sports or whatever, and it would be a sports show that plays music or whatever, and then just talks about sports. That's basically it. And they'll get some some guy who is like maybe an ex baseball player who's also a TV announcer now and to host the show, but it has nothing to do with the color of the station or anything. So the only station that I know of that will not do that in Tokyo is J wave. Okay. J wave is still strict about their brand, but most stations, they don't care. Interesting. Yeah. I think so. that also works with imports and exports where you could have, for example, a very well-established um, company, you're just mentioning matcha a lot, so we could have like a very traditional Kyoto matcha company, but their imaging and brand name doesn't match for um, French people. So you just simply yeah. make a new package, throw the, the matcha, whatever it is, the same matcha as it's always been into this new package, reprice it, rebrand it, and then ship yeah. it overseas. Exactly. Yeah. And, and that's why like, that part, is a, it's actually a really... A really hard part like you need to find the right price you need to be sure you know you need to make this whole price structure where you come from the, the manufacturing cost to like you know shipping and receiving and uh, uh, people like even the retail margin but in the end you need to fit like the customer the the customer price the price people are ready to pay for and to find that you know you need to research you need to maybe sometimes organize focus groups we try to do that in japan for example where we test some samples um, with the group, see what they like, what they don't like, but also like how much would they really, really pay for. And even on that part, you know, like for Corona, after Corona, you know, we can't organize a group anymore. I mean, we try not to. So we try to find like, you know, more digital ways of doing things. Do it on uh, Zoom. Yeah. But, even, you know, that, that has uh, some issues too. For example, if you want to test the wine, uh, you have a big bottle. You're not going to send a bottle per person uh, because then, if it's quite expensive, then it, the whole the costs are you know getting higher. So you need to repackage. Sometimes you would need to repackage some products to be able to ship uh, samples to everybody. So for if sure, only like there the was somebody with digital uh, experiences in uh, shipping. <laughs> exactly. Uh, no, but so, you know, the, the interaction part, I think like it's become really easy now to get people on a Zoom. Like four months ago, say like, we're going to go on the Zoom call, people were like, or even whatever, video call, like 
whoa, whoa, that's weird. So that part has been taken care of. But it's more like the logistics part of it. It's still, you know, we need to find out how to do those things. Yeah. And, uh, but that's, a, again, a, a really interesting problem to have. Is Zoom calming, I'm sorry, not Zoom, is COVID calming down for you in the logistics field or is it still this massive painful wedge? Oh, it's, it's pretty hard right now. I mean, it's, it's been hard. Like uh, the last two months, like not just the logistics, but, you know, uh, every, everybody was under kind of freeze a bit. Like uh, we don't, okay, we need to stop expenses. We need to stop everything. Um, last month, or yeah, maybe this month, last month, like it really started like again, like uh, everything, like all the projects, people are, people can imagine the future again. <laughs> um, so, but we still have those challenges of uh, shipping, for example, like I said, uh, you know, air freight is two times or three times higher. So when we make a price structure, if we need to rely on air freight, then that's, that's, that's a big issue because it's way harder to, to fit a customer price anymore sometimes. Right? Uh-huh. So that, that still has some consequences, of course. Um, what about so doing licensing we, we, like uh, Quentin Tarantino's matcha? <laughs> yeah, sure. But we still need to get the matcha somewhere, right? And you'd still uh, need to pay Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. Both. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. All right. So thank you very much, uh, Hugo Batear, for being on the podcast. Uh, where can people find your um, product or get in contact with you? Uh, so our website is at gourmetpro.co. So G-O-U-R-M-E-T-P-R-O dot C-O. All right. And they can get their Gourmet Pro needs there. I had gone to GourmetPro.com, and I think it took me to a different location. Oh, GourmetPro.com is a really shitty website, but your GourmetPro.co looks amazing. Oh, I'm glad glad you told me that because I went to GourmetPro.com, and I was like, oh, this guy's fucked. But <laughs> after going to gourmetpro.co, this looks really good. This looks really nice. Yeah. Oh, good, good, good. It's uh, very, very interactive and easy to see. Uh, good colors. Um, yeah, yeah. It looks like you got a good design team uh, helping you out there. That's cool. Yeah. yeah. But if you look Gourmet Pro on, uh, on Google, normally you find us in theory. Okay. Yeah. We're, we're better ranked. <laughs> Obviously, because gourmetpro.com is a rough piece of garbage, but uh, gourmetpro.co is where you want to be. Donate to the Japan What podcast by going to paypal.me forward slash Japan WUT. is at home, Wi-Fi, your internet, your internet service provider. Uh, We're in the middle of rainy season here in Japan, and that's when things get especially hot. And there's this word I like to use, some of you may have heard it before, but it's this combination word, a portmanteau, as Howard Drake once informed me of the technical term. And 
It's when the sweat runs down your back and into your butt crack and then kind of mixes mixes with the, the contents there into a kind of a froth, you know, the sweaty-ass froth. And this is uh, infamously referred to as swass. So when we get into the rainy season here in Japan, it's, uh, for me, basically a preclude to swass season. And this is something you got to manage if you're living here. Um, now, a lot of people will say, I will always wear jeans and drink my coffee hot. But after a few years of 35 degree weather and 90% humidity, you learn to drink iced coffee and wear cool biz clothing. That's these uh, formal style office wear that's been specifically designed by elite Japanese clothing design engineering teams to create the illusion of professionality, but the comfort of lazy ties in their linens on the beach. It's not a bad idea. Um, so there we go, swass. Please remember that word, swass. There's no word like it, and there will never be another word like it again. So that was pretty fun, having Uta Batier on the show. A um, couple of more news things here. Uh, from I, I really see the, the issue of supply chains and getting supply chains out of China and then digitizing them, using this as a chance to digitize them uh, as a huge chance. And in the interview, I was mentioning that um, Huawei wants to use their network to combine... Uh, to connect uh, African coffee growers with Beijing producers. And in the past few years, Beijing has become a coffee center. I was there about a year ago, and the coffee was amazing. Um, they kind of skipped over the the cheap coffee, because I think most Chinese people just drink cheap tea or some other stimulant that they have all, already there. But the the amount of gourmet, the gourmet coffee, uh the available in Beijing was, was really shocking. And the idea of, of coffee in Beijing just seems to be hand in hand. It's, it's one of those things like um, Vietnamese sandwiches and bubble tea for certain New Yorker types, just one of those things. So with the Huawei technology, China's building trains and shipping lanes into Africa. And, and if they also have um, Huawei 5G or 4G or whatever internet connection along those trade routes, an African coffee maker can post a picture of their beans onto an e-commerce website with a price. And then the person in Beijing can see that price and see how much it's going to take to ship it to them, just like Amazon or whatever, order it. And then the Beijing, uh, the African coffee farmer in Kenya or whatever, puts the beans on the train, the train to the ship, the ship back to China, and then back on a train to Beijing. And uh, you, it, you didn't need an asset management team because it was all done on an internet platform. And this is a, increasingly a threat to a lot of the traditional ways of things being shipped around the world. And um, in my opinion, it's only going to continue because what happened with the COVID-19 back when it was called um, the Wuhan influenza, which, you know, a lot of people say is racist, uh, but it's still called that in many places in Asia. I've done the Google analytics on it. Um, um, 
made people realize that there was a massive bottleneck of of telecommunications gear, of pharmaceutical production, of cybersecurity, of of car parts, all in Wuhan. And then when this uh, epidemic started in China, the government could just say, no, we're shutting this place down. And all of these um, global companies, like super powerful companies, realized that their supply chains were in huge um, risk zones. And it wasn't just one type of industry. It was cross. So it was a cross-industry vulnerability uh, bottleneck uh, center. So, But getting those supply chains out of China is going to be very difficult because China is a a business, um, business environment. Going in is easy enough. Getting out is really hard. So you might have to abandon certain factories and uh, relocate them. And uh, Fouad from Kyoto Protocol and an economist from Kuala Lumpur was saying, yeah, India is one idea, but another idea is um, a network of Southeast Asian countries. Uh, If Indonesia and the Philippines could modernize a little bit, they could cooperate with each other in a more open fashion uh, and interface with the West that way, uh, which is a pretty interesting idea. So um, I don't know why I'm fascinated with it, but when I think of something that's super huge and has major long-term effects, and then people using that as a chance to inject a, a, a massive update to the modernity of a process, you know, in this case, apps and 5G, um, people say blockchain. I was really into blockchain for a while. It could have an effect if it's if it's small enough. But um, with uh, with parts, car parts, where you know where the part has been, who signed it, when it was in a place, and it, you can just open up a file and you can see it changing. And if there's some sort of suspicious activity in the network, you can just simply click on that uh, where where it's suspicious, and it'll take you maybe to a live camera feed where where you can see things going on or not you know if you just have a piece of paper with a map on it you you the least the most you can do is put a red circle around it and hand it off to a boss somewhere who puts it into a fax machine and who knows when it will get back to you or when and you'll immediately lose interest anyway so um the yeah these these things just fascinate me um anyways got mike messaging me here so a couple of things before we yeah so regarding that this one this news item surprised me and this is we'll just go kind of go through some headlines and then call it a day folks um, Fujifilm Holdings Corp will spend 928 million dollars to double capacity at a drug manufacturing facility in Denmark um so Fujifilm is pivoting towards healthcare and is choosing a place like Denmark for its supply chain. Another one. This one's totally irrelevant, but um, I remember not really being, I'm a 90s kid, I remember not being in a Nirvana at all. But the day that Nirvana had their 1993 MTV Unplugged, the next day, it was one of those things where everybody was talking about it, and it really did have a significant cultural effect. 
And this is uh, the guitar that grunge rock icon Kurt Cobain played during his legendary 1993 MTV Unplugged performance, sold Saturday for a record $6 million. The retro acoustic electric 1959 Martin D18E was sold to Peter Friedman, founder of Rode Microphones, at Julian's auction. And he wants to apparently put the guitar in a case and tour it around or put it in some display thing. You know, you could... That that thing's just going to be a moneymaker wherever he goes. So he could put a couple of road microphones around that in a display case and uh, probably see an uptick in sales without any action. But, whoa. Anyways. Um, masks for nightclub hostesses developed by Japan kimono maker to create an alluring atmosphere. Inspired by face veils worn by belly dancers, the masks feature three vertical strips of cloth that form a curtain covering the nose and mouth, with the strip in the center of double thickness. Priced between 2,000 yen and 3,800 yen, that's about 20 to 40 bucks, the masks are available in various colors, including black, blue, pink, and three types of material, plain, lace, and traditional Yonezawa fabric. And this is the idea that... um, so many people are, are furloughed because of the COVID. And at this point, they're just like, if you need to wear, me to wear a mask to make some money, I will wear a mask to make some money. Uh, and uh, good old Japan found a way to make it fashionable. Mm. And there we go. Some people are like, mm, is this Sharia law? And I'm like, I don't know. Is it? Uh, Force masks. But in, in Japan, there's a culture of mask wearing that makes it apolitical, which is nice. Um seeing a whole bunch of people turning politics into a an, into a mask statement is a little bit on the crazy side for me. Um, so there we go. Don't forget to like the Facebook page, facebook.com slash Japan What. We have a promo poster there for you who wants to copy and paste it or give us a like. Um, we're also on Twitter. My Twitter is at, at @mrbiglow, and you can follow me there. And other than that, that's going to be it for today's show. So this is the Japan What Podcast, blowing hot air out of the back end of Tokyo. I'm your host, Matt Bigelow, MatthewPMBigelow.com. MatthewPMBigelow.com. That's MatthewPMBigelow.com. Thank you very much for listening. Have a great day. Stay safe and catch you next time. Blowing hot air. Actually, yeah, I'm going to do that. So, guess what? This is Japan, but I'm not Japanese. I've been supporting and following um, this guy. His name is Korb Lund. I've been supporting him since I did a cross-Canada tour with a band I was in called Semi Louise back in 2005. And um, Corbeland was a um, metal bassist in a punk metal band called The Smalls. And then after that, he went into country music, which I'm uh, kind of a fan of. Not the stadium country music, but more like the outlaw country music. Willie Nelson, Johnny Cash, that type of thing. And uh, Corbeland recently released an album. And I'm going to play one of the singles from that album. This single is called The Grizzly Bear Blues, I believe. Or am I going to play Old Men? I'm going to play old men. You know, there's a lot of ageism going on these days and uh, Corblund, yeah, old men. So let's let's finish the podcast with an outro, a song outro, a song tro by Corblund off of his new album Agricultural Tragic with this song. 
old men. Thank you for listening. MatthewPBigelow.com. Take her easy and catch you next time. And fancy riding bulls and drinking beer. But give me some young buckaroos, kind of wet behind the ears. Cause I'll take fire in the belly, and it feels a little green. There's sometimes piss and vinegar is exactly what you need. But I want old man making my. Thank you.